0: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more
1: done. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a millionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details.
2: Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A.
3: everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your masters of the minutiae. My name is Jordan Runtag. And I'm Alex Heigl. And today we're going to look back at the ultimate test of physical and mental endurance for a generation of kids. I am talking, of course, about Legends of the Hidden Temple, Nickelodeon's bold attempt at blending Double Dare with Indiana Jones while exclusively using items purchased from Party City. Yes, the set was cheap, the stories were hokey, but I watched this show religiously after school because it was a crucial reminder that no matter how bad my day went in 3rd grade, at least I wasn't getting manhandled by a man in a headdress or falling into lukewarm water on national television. <laughs> Did you watch this a lot growing up? This was like a big thing for me. Did you harbor ambitions to to be on the show? No, I um mine was the
0: Agrocrag one.
3: Oh, guts. Yeah. Okay.
0: I very I mean, I was also like Belying my extremely sedentary lifestyle, lived <laughs> mostly indoors, almost exclusively indoors. At this point in my life, um, I was a really like backyard ninja kid. I was just forty feet up in trees, jumping off his. Well,
3: sh-. So I like. Well, you're a black belt, so I can imagine that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would watch Guts and be like, "Those putzes! <laughs> How
3: dare they! <laughs> Why were you guts over uh, over the Temple?" I don't know. I think it was the it was the aggro Yeah, just more the, impressive. It there was an I Olympic love, element to it. I yes, feel like wasn't there like yes. international global guts? Didn't they have like yep, was, yeah. yeah global okay, guts? Okay, yep. felt more. I just wanted
0: to beat a Frenchman. <laughs> I just wanted to beat a young French child on for the honor of my country on the, the aggro crack.
3: I wanted to break him on the wheel of pain. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess I, you know, Legends for me is, you know, as you were out in the backyard climbing trees, I was a wannabe historian. So maybe the kind of Indiana Jones nature of Legends of the Temple kind of has more of an appeal for me. Yeah. I mean, also the other thing, I think part of the appeal of these Nickelodeon game shows just in general was that it really was a chance to see kids truly just like me, but more coordinated (laughs) on television, you know, in this era kids are basically born knowing how to be on camera thanks to iPhones. So it's kind of refreshing to see clips where, you know, contestants are so insanely unmedia trained. It was nice to like revisit some of these clips.
0: Yeah, it's really it is refreshing and and um, you know, it taught many kids and very important lessons. Don't trust giant stone heads.
3: Yes, that is right.
0: Danger lurks around every corner. <laughs> anyway, from the possible possibly actual connection that this show has to the Sopranos, to the man trapped inside the aforementioned Stonehead, to the, I refuse to believe that this man's actual name is Kirk Fogg, but to the host Kirk Fogg, here is everything you didn't know about Legends of the Hidden Temple.
3: Legends of the Hidden Temple was the brainchild of three gentlemen, David G. Stanley, Scott A. Stone, and Stephen Brown, who together formed the Stone Stanley Production Squad. And these guys were fairly heavy hitters. Uh, Scott Stone and David G. Stanley helped create The Mole, The Man Show, Loveline, and my favorite, Shop Till You Drop. But Stephen Brown has something even more interesting on his resume, and I wasn't able to confirm this. It's not on his IMDb page, but it's on his Wikipedia page and various fan sites, and I just want to share it because it's so weird and interesting. Several sources cite him as having an executive producer credit on several episodes in the final season of The Sopranos. I choose to believe this because it's so crazy and I so badly want to believe. Um, But yeah, this trio of gentlemen planned to create a show for kids that was essentially a blend of Jeopardy and American Gladiators. Um, But as it was initially conceived, it was going to be set in a haunted house. And Scott Stone, one of the executive producers and creators of Legends of Hidden Temple, talked about this in an interview with the A.V. Club. In this initial concept, kids would work their way through this haunted house and monsters would jump out at you as you attempted to do the challenges. Um, not unlike real life. And they pitched <laughs> this idea to Nickelodeon, who in classic corporate speak basically said, we love it. Just change Everything about it. Just change the premise and it'll be great. Uh, They really weren't happy with the monster's element. They didn't like the whole haunted house thing. So Stone Stanley Productions went back to the drawing board and they ultimately hit upon the idea of the jungle. And as uh, Scott Stone told the AV Club, the jungle was a perfect idea because it's still a scary place. And then we stumbled on the idea of this temple where all these interesting things come together. Which I don't know. It's weird to me that Nickelodeon didn't like monsters because a few years later they would greenlight a show called Ah uh, Real Monsters. Um, <laughs> not to mention, like Are You Afraid of the Dark? I think was around this era. So I don't know. Maybe they thought they yeah, were going too monsters. hard on the scary stuff. Yeah. Goosebumps were, were
0: huge, right? Man, we should have. We missed our boat. Yeah. <clears throat> we should have pitched a children's competition show based in the world of Goosebumps. We have like oh. fight were- werewolves and
3: or ventriloquist dummies.
0: No, <laughs> nope. nope. <laughs> that thing
3: i was not allowed to have a ventriloquist dummy in my house as a kid my parents were like that yeah no uh slappy man nightmare fuel <laughs> god second only to fern cully for me It's uh, so
0: funny all right i'm piecing together the jordan a yeah.
3: <laughs> fear quilt <laughs> Uh, The producers behind Legends of the Hidden Temple have this theory about game shows. They say that they're all story-driven, or at least the good ones are. Scott Stone has said that every competition, from professional sports to Wheel of Fortune, has a narrative element or a story. And they created Legends of the Hidden Temple specifically to be story-driven rather than game-driven. And in the aforementioned AV Club interview, he said, It was designed to be the anti-double-dare, if you will. Double-dare was about individual games that were sloppy and funny. I didn't think they were that funny. And this was designed to have a story (laughs) arc and characters and no sloppiness, no sloppiness. (laughs) And that's where you get the legends that give each episode the title and story arc through line. And these legends usually drew on a historical figure and an object of some kind, usually a fictitious one. There was Harriet Tubman's walking stick or the pig of Amelia Earhart or the yellow snakeskin boots of Billy the Kid or my favorite, the giant nose ring of Babe the Big Blue Ox, Paul. Bunyan's pet. Actually, no, my favorite is the golden pepperoni of Catherine de Medici. That's also a very good one. So there are all these, you know, kind of goofy historical items. So obviously these things are all pretty goofy. And Stone says that they drew on the fractured fairy tales segment from the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons as sort of inspirations for these legends. Uh, To be honest, I have no memory of any of these so-called legends having any educational value whatsoever. And the clips that I watched on YouTube recently back this up. Total fictitious fantasy garbage (laughs) goofiness. But Stone claims that the show was supposed to double as a covert history lesson that made learning fun. And in an interview around the show's launch, David Stanley, another one of the show's co-creators, is quoted as saying, We call it edutainment. You're going to need some work on that. Yeah, I have to work on that that word. We just (laughs) reached into the history of legendary people so that we could base the show in fact and combined it with games and stunts that were fun to watch. And they felt the kids responded well to being told a story. And they said that this was just an experience that all kids had through high school. There's always someone standing in front of them telling them a story, be it a teacher, a parent, a relative. So in this case, the person telling that story would be a giant stone face. Enter Olmec. <laughs> Enter pursued by a bear.
1: Um, also, I want to say
3: I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's a pretty limited grasp on child psychology. If you think the kids respond well to having an yeah. adult stand in front to of to being and lectured, tell them right? Exactly. I thought. What was, what was your favorite part of, of
0: your youth? Being lectured? Ah, oh, Jesus. Yeah, being lectured to. Yeah. Television executives. Children's man. TV
3: executives, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>
0: um. Yes, Olmec. Surprisingly, given his intimidating appearance, Olmec was um, put together on a shoestring, eraser head style, <laughs> David Lynch style. So, Olmec's name is a reference to the Olmec civilization, which predates the Mayans. The Olmec on the set of legends was not made of stone. As <laughs> I'm not made of stone. Um, <laughs> one former contestant, a woman named Nicole, described it in an interview with Cracked.com. As, quote, this moving rubber thing that if you were close enough, you could hear the parts inside. This was because, as Scott Stone later admitted, they didn't have any money. The whole show was really cheap, he said. Everybody that was in that show had multiple jobs. My cousin Jed, Clampett, was the writer, and he was also one of the temple guards, so there was no money. They assembled Olmec's giant rubber head, but quickly realized it was lacking what the French call a certain... I don't know what. Uh, Specifically, it looked dead behind the eyes, which can relate. Uh, Quote, it wasn't looking good. It wasn't coming alive. So they figured that lighting the eyes would be helpful, and um, they wanted them to kind of flicker as he spoke. But nobody could figure out how to do that, um, which... Jesus Christ, I feel like the stoners of my high school shop class could... Like, I've seen more impressive haunted houses in central Pennsylvania. You couldn't (laughs) figure out how to make that work. Anyway, co-creator-producer David Stanley went to Radio Shack to buy voice-activated disco balls that would flash in time to the music. Then they gutted it, busted out a soldering iron, and connected it to Olmec's eyeballs so that when he spoke into the microphone, it flashed with his voice. But, like a David Cronenberg movie... Olmec was a hideous mixture of the mechanical and the biological inside that giant six foot head. There was an actual human being with a script and a microphone and a series of levers or just one. Actually, of course not a series. They couldn't afford a series one two by four lever uh, that he would move the bottom lip of this thing in time to his speech. That gentleman's name was D Bradley Baker, who voiceover nerds will recognize as potentially being the most prolific voice actor in the world. They have his number of characters as 1,784 as of 2019, so potentially is higher than that. And this is even greater than Mel Blanc, who is a Looney Tunes icon, uh, who had done 1,121.
3: He's like the voice artist guy. I mean, he did Bugs Bunny, he did Daffy Duck, he did... Everybody. Yeah.
0: D. Bradley Baker has done, uh, SpongeBob, Phineas and Ferb, American Dad, and has the distinction of voicing a parrot on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. So there you go. But, uh, he, he liked the cake. He had a fun time on Legends. He said he, uh, when he didn't have anything to do, he would just hang out in the head and read a book, <laughs> which cozy, I guess. Uh, and he got a front row seat when the kids were doing the stunts. He also used to love to uh, rib the stage crew whenever something technical went wrong because he would then laugh at them inside of this giant head, which probably caused
3: some nightmares. Yeah, the sight (laughs) of a giant stone head laughing at your misfortune (laughs) is pretty terrifying. I Uh, mean, as we get to later, these shoots were between 12 and 18 hours long each day. So, yeah, it's probably a good thing that he brought a book. Setting the tone for the relatively fly-by-night nature of this production, uh, again, went to Radio Shack, cannibalized some (laughs) disco balls for Olmec, the producers chose their host more or less at random, opting for the less than thorough practice of thumbing through a headshot catalog, and they liked the look of a guy named Kirk Fogg, who I half (sighs) suspect Was chosen at least for his evocative name. I mean, it's set in the jungle, all that dry ice. Kirk Fogg, come on, what an incredible (laughs) name. He was asked to audition, where he read some play by play from a teleprompter. And though he'd never hosted anything in his life, he got the gig. And he seems like a lovely guy who got super invested in the kids, as evidenced by his frantic and frequently incoherent coaching from the sidelines as kids were running through the temple at the end of the game turn left turn right oh turn it yeah it was very sweet and he said in an interview with BuzzFeed we didn't go through that whole day of shooting for them to get stuck doing something. those rooms were super hard and there were a lot of technical things to do in there. so I would have to scream like turn the wheel to the left to the left put the base on the other way very sweet. And he tells the story of this one little girl who, to use his words, did not seem like she had the capabilities of making it through the temple. Uh, but ultimately she did, she made it and she started to cry after she completed it out of just happiness and pride. And then Kirk started to cry because it was just, you know, so unexpected. What what a guy. And all the interviews that I have read with him, he seems very, very sweet. Um, as a point of fact, he says that his favorite team was the Silver Snakes because, quote, they're very down and dirty, very blue collar. <laughs> a lot of the interviews he gives, he's pretty dry, so he could just be being sarcastic or facetious here. But yeah, Kirk Fogg, good dude. Years later, he got a letter from a fan asking him to sign a picture of himself so that an engaged couple could auction it off at their wedding shower to raise money for their honeymoon.
1: I, I, I love
3: that. I just think that's... You don't see yeah. Kirk, no, Fog. I mean
0: it's fine. I was, I thought it was gonna be for something a little bit more like children, like in a make you know, like a wish thing yeah. or something. And now it's like Disney adults like need money for their
3: whatever. Yeah, That's fine. I mean, it's fine. Yeah. It's all fine. Kirk Fogg, he's truly the kids' game show host of the people. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment.
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So, the show has its host, they have its premise, they have its giant talking stone head. Now they need some contestants. This brings us to the auditions for Legends of the Hidden Temple, a test of the mind, a test of the body, and a test of Nickelodeon trivia. The auditions for this really kind of sound like they were pretty rigorous. One former contestant told the Orlando Sentinel back in 1994 that she had to take a written test, run, climb a rope, and do pull-ups during the tryout. Good Lord. Which means that I would have failed both then and now. (laughs) But in recent years, the kind of more cutthroat nature of these auditions was made clear. In a former contestant's interview with Cracked that we mentioned earlier, this woman Nicole, she said that kids froze while climbing the rope only to be shouted at by producers, you stay up there and you're out. And they apparently weren't kidding. Um, These poor kids just terrified at the top of these ropes. They were also asked trivia questions about Nickelodeon. And I guess one of these questions was about Ren and Stimpy. And some kid apparently said, Ren's the cat, right? And as soon as he said that, a Nickelodeon producer put his hand on this kid's shoulder and just escorted him out of the line (laughs) gone said the former contestant like just like that um she likened the process to a jury selection she said that really hyper kids were taken out of consideration crabby kids were gone and kids who didn't know nick were also gone those are her words each team was paired with two kids, a boy and a girl, between the ages of 11 and 15. And according to a former contestant named Anthony, the two-person teams were usually the result of kids being herded into a staging area and paired together at random by a production assistant. And so the whole getting-to-know-you period was limited to just a few minutes while they got into their gear and headed to the moat. And it seems like more often than not, these teammates did not get along. (laughs) <laughs> reading all of the interviews I could find with former contestants the word idiot appears with alarming frequency <laughs> uh, usually this was a result of blowing the trivia portion of the game on the steps of knowledge we'll get mm. through all the different parts of the of the game in a minute one ex-contestant is quoted as saying and cracked my partner was an idiot he didn't know who <laughs> Montezuma was despite the talking head explaining that and a producer telling us before we went on seriously I've been divorced once now and I'm more angry about my partner messing that up in 1993 <laughs> it's a tremendous quote
0: ah uh, all right so before we get any further into the temple onto the temple into the legends of the into Hidden the temple. legends yes uh then we should talk about the gameplay let's talk about the specifics now, a little um,
3: refresher because it, it was 25 years for me it took me a minute to remember all this stuff
0: so it's been divide- It's divided into four sections the moat steps of knowledge the temple games and finally the temple run where a stranger danger would happen to you. A man would jump out of nowhere. Yeah, in.
3: Temple guards. Damn temple guards. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> the moat.
0: Uh, moat requires players to cross a shallow pool of lukewarm water obscured with dry ice. Um, which... Harder than a,
3: did you really not watch this at all? Is this totally? No, lovely, I remember like, uh, what it
0: was. I remember vaguely what it was. I don't remember having the option of things to bridge that, though.
3: Well, every time, every episode was different. Sometimes you'd get across the moat via raft. Sometimes you had to swing across on a rope. Sometimes there were these little, like, right. rope bridges you went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was whatever the producers felt like that day. However, I think they felt mind, like torturing kids.
0: <laughs> I think that in my mind, this is all just blending with the many, many more episodes of uh, Most Extreme Elimination Challenge that I watched. <laughs> anyway, the first of four, six teams to ring their gong progresses to the next round, and then the other teams uh, who don't are sent home with a consolation prize, which, garbage. Uh, Hershey's Chocolate Syrup, Nestle's Quick, LA Looks Hair Gel, Star-Kissed Tuna, Nerds Candy, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary or a $50 savings bond, all of which sounds like sh- you would find out in a cardboard box around the end of
3: the month. Marked free, yes. I mean, imagine competing on a game show and getting a can of star tuna as your prize. I mean, again, not to look a gift horse in the mouth, but...
0: No, come on. I'd hawk it at the producers before I left. Are you kidding me? Give me a can of... F- tuna fish do these people here's the here's my alternate theory do these know these, what kids are yeah i was gonna say they hated children <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to keep, create a game show that would punish every child that they came across
3: oh it's man like, just all throw right. this can at the producer's lexus in the parking lot yeah all exactly
0: out. all right so make it across the moat get to the steps of knowledge
3: <laughs> you get to
0: the, the steps of knowledge Olmec would tell the story of that episode's legend. Amelia Earhart's Lucky Pig, Catherine D. Medici's Pepperoni, uh, Catherine the Great's Harness. You get that one? I do. Okay. <laughs> Google that you one yourself. That one. You, you folks will get that one on the, your car ride home. <laughs> um, when it was done, the teams would be quizzed about the info that they were given. The retention was not challenging. Although, I don't know, if you're six years old and you're spazzing out for being on your favorite network, I probably wouldn't remember (laughs) And so to hedge their bets, the producers made the questions multiple choice. You answer the question correctly, you go down the step. First two teams to get to the bottom would progress, while the others get slightly better consolation prizes. like Dunkin' Yo-Yos. I would have been jacked by Dunkin' Yo-Yo. Were you an Imperial
3: or a Butterfly Man?
0: Butterfly all the way. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, copies of Honey We Shrunk Ourselves on VHS, which I would still take, honestly. Uh, or Sega Genesis games, which I would also oh, yeah. take. Man, oh. hell yeah. It turns out all you need to do is get to the uh, steps of knowledge, and then you start getting the good stuff. Next up, we have The Temple Games. These are a series of three one-minute challenges in which teams compete for the ominously named Pendants of Life, which is uh, not the thing that Grandma clicks. Uh, in a desperate attempt to recruit another day. The first two games were worth half a pendant. The second was worth a full pendant. Teams with the most pendants would progress to the temple. Prizes include NBA Jam for Genesis. We should do NBA Jam. Hush Puppies Moon Shoes, yeah. BK Ratch Tech, yeah. <laughs> Armatron Looney Tunes watches, and Laguna Sportswear. Holy shit, I forgot about BK Ratch Tech till just now. All I had a these pair names of make those. me so happy. Oh my god, I had a pair of those. I feel like, oh man, I think I got kicked out of class a couple of times for just for ratcheting them, <laughs> you know, too aggressively. I was just too extreme. <laughs> Lastly... The temple run.
3: Everybody remembers this.
0: Yeah, more on this to come. We'll talk about the obstacle course in a bit, but... First, uh, you know, we have to get through the actual obstacle course, (laughs) the -the behind-the-scenes obstacle course.
3: Yes. Like most game shows, Legends taped multiple episodes a day, sometimes as many as six, because it was the most economical way to do it. Most of the production crew was based out of Los Angeles. The show was taped in Orlando, so they had a limited amount of time to record episodes for the show. They basically turned this into an assembly line, cranking out the first season of 40 episodes in just 10 days. Holy, which is sh- in our pace yeah <laughs> yeah Uh, but the production got off to a rough start on day one, which turned into an 18 hour torture test for these kids. (laughs) Um, And a lot of that was due to the first day kinks. And the big issue was that they recorded the show section by section so that they wouldn't have to keep resetting up the shots for every episode they were shooting. So they did all the moat crossings for all the episodes they were shooting that day at once. Then all the steps of knowledge segments, all of the temple game segments. And finally at the very end of the day, When, as Kurt Fogg told BuzzFeed, the kids were, quote, properly delirious and loaded down with complimentary pizza, they would tackle the temple runs. And (laughs) Kirk would say, the kids were so wiped, they were crying, they were weeping, because it was like 11 o'clock at night, and we were running them through the temple. I do think that he's being slightly hyperbolic, but I've also seen some sources say that some tapings went on until one in the morning. So... um. I'd be very interested in reading whatever contract the contestant signed and running it by a child labor lawyer, because that sounds like a lot.
0: Do you think they circumvented it by it being a quote unquote competition and not like a scripted thing? Because I know they're not allowed, you're not allowed to have kids in like a scripted thing for more than like eight hours, right? That's oh why yeah, it's like in Full twins. House, they got the twins, yeah.
3: because you could have them on and off and alternate. Yeah, no, I probably, yeah, I'm sure. Um, as one might expect on a set where the chief special effect was something rigged up from a radio shack disco ball, many of the (laughs) props malfunctioned, bucket lifts would be missing and doors would stick shut. And every time this happened, the team would have to start the temple runs again. Um, this is interesting. The wheel from the wheel room was a leftover prop from double dare. Hmm. (laughs) So eventually, yeah. How about that? Uh, they eventually worked out most of the kinks, but even in later seasons, the experience of running the temple was reportedly not pleasant for most of these kids. We go back to our friend Nicole, who spoke to crack.com. She described the temple as, quote, a mix between a cheap haunted house and a McDonald's play place. And she also complained that the backside of the temple sets just were Bare plywood. She said, yeah, they didn't even bother painting the side that wasn't on camera. Like, look, we know it wasn't an actual temple or anything, but you'd think they put out some kind of trivial effort to make it less sad for the contestants. (laughs) She said it's almost as if they enjoyed disillusioning them. Uh... I don't know. I will say that kind of seems like an unreasonable complaint. Of course, I'm not going to paint the back of a set, but still.
0: Uh, Nicole- I I personally enjoy this theory we have, we have going on where the they producers hate kids. just hated children yeah. and created the show to punish them.
3: <laughs> uh, Nicole would go on to say that the only thing worse than hanging out backstage was actually entering the temple. She said, this is her quote, the stage was like coming into a nightmare. It was darker. Smoke was there. You saw kid after kid coming in looking exhausted or crying or something else terrible. And then you went in. There was actually dread there. Cheap effects or not, it was a sense of foreboding. It was because they kept playing
0: uh, Alan Splett's score to Eraserhead in the background.
3: picture <laughs> picturing something
0: out of like Apocalypse Now. <laughs> yeah. Good lord. There's rats in here, Michael. <laughs> Long-time listeners of the podcast will know that I consistently reference the scene from Deer Hunter, uh, in which a character is submerged in a... A POW is submerged in a river, in a wooden cage, much like Legends of the Hidden Temple. I was going to say, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, there were rats swarming on him, and so he shouts, There's rats in here, Michael. And that was not in the script. That was an actual thing that happened to him. He was not talking to the character named Michael, but to the film's director michael simono who would later go on to blow up a horse if i am remembering correctly and he's correct. the reason he's the reason that there's the PETA thing in every movie right now right from heaven's gate <laughs> yeah that's right i'm not making that up no he really i know blew up, he blew up a horse all right cool moving on
3: this <laughs> <laughs> sets the vibe for this Adding to this weird feeling uh, as you enter the temple was the fact that the audience had usually gone home by the time the temple runs were (laughs) recorded (laughs) because it was so late at night, the studio had closed to guests. Jesus Christ. They just did this to an empty studio. Just
0: children crying and throwing (laughs) up in an empty room, slowly filling with dry fog, and a middle aged man yelling at them from the sidelines. This is unimaginably (laughs) grim.
3: (laughs) And a giant rubber head laughing whenever a problem occurred. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so the the whole sense of foreboding. Yeah, I I get that. That makes sense. And I guess they they dubbed in like an audience track after for the Temple Runs just to make it seem like it wasn't this, you know, dead studio. So that's weird. I guess I should add for legal reasons that the show eventually got the shoot day down to just 12 hours instead of 18. Uh, (laughs) They also had a nurse on set in case of emergencies. Apparently no kids were ever seriously harmed, though a girl did once vomit into the pit of despair. Who among us though? Uh, This delayed the shoot for a not insignificant amount of time, but these nurses were unable to do anything for the emotional wounds inflicted by the temple guards. Alex, tell us about the temple guards.
0: Folks, as these children at the end of their ropes, uh, literal physical metaphysical metaphorical emotional spiritual psychological, spiritual uh running through an empty tv studio in front of a bunch of pissed off teamsters <laughs> stuffed with pizza uh having seen their peers sent home in tears with a can of star tuna suddenly as you're running your way th- through a plywood maze in the dark the scent of Dry ice clogging your tiny nostrils. Strange men in pseudo-Mayan outfits burst out of random corners, ch- attempting to seize your hard-earned pendants of life by force, which teaches children an important lesson about the way that
3: <laughs> life actually works. Stranger danger. They actually grabbed these kids, man. I Yeah, I had to like re-watch some of those clips to like make sure that was right, because that was how I remembered it. And good lord, yeah, they grab them.
0: Yeah, uh, of course, these people were just lowly production assistants, or even the shows writers. God, can you imagine being low enough on the writers' room totem pole that they're like, "We ran out of PAs. You're in the headdress." I went to
3: screenwriting school. I can very much imagine that. Yes. Yeah, I, I guess true. Sure you can.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, man. I mean, I don't know. Uh, kids have their
3: breaking point, and after yes. hours of this nonsense, running through this terrifying set. As unforgiving cameras capture their every move before millions of members of the viewing public, these temple guards understandably push many of these kids over the edge.
0: Uh, so according to one of the many Nickelodeon fan sites that are uh, around the internet, they crunch the numbers on this stuff, like the win-loss ratio, the different teams. 15% of contestants on this show cried after being scared by a temple guard. Anecdotally, seems to scan. Haven't gone through all the tapes yet. We've got Jamie working on it. Um... (laughs) We'll get back to you. And again, a- anecdotal evidence backs this up. A-, a lot of the former contestants talk about it as something that has stuck with them <laughs> to this very day. One woman uh, named Keely... Told espnation.com in 2013 that the sight of a temple guard reduced her to tears, saying, They are the scariest thing imaginable. Nothing is scarier, and I will stand by that statement until the day I die. I'm 31 and I can't go to haunted houses. I'm deathly afraid of things popping out of closets and doors. Another ex contestant says she wrote a paper for her high school English class about the scariest thing she ever saw, and she revisited her temple guard experience. And yet another ex-contestant said, those guardians fed up at least a few kids' lives. I know that for a fact. But not every child collapsed in the face of unimaginable <laughs> horror. It
3: didn't go down without a fight. They went
0: down swinging. Yeah. They did not go gentle into that good night. <laughs> Some of these kids fought back, literally, elbowing the men in the crotch. Um, which good for them. Yeah. Right? Uh and Kirk Fogg, legendary television host Kirk Fogg. <laughs> I just want to keep saying his name, give myself different reasons to say that. Uh, In his BuzzFeed interview, he sympathized with the kids. He said, come on, you are completely invested in going through that temple. So just think about when you're going through a temple. Okay, I will. Uh, You're trying to get something together, and you don't know where you're going next, and suddenly this costumed man temple guard comes out and scares you. Uh, He added in that interview he's been trying to get all the ex-temple guards together for dinner, which is kind of adorable. but that's just like a bunch of middle-aged men ribbing each other. Like, ah, I remember when we made Keeley cry. Uh, if you were a legends of the hidden temple guard or PA or Kirk fog, please reach out to us and we will, I don't know, run a correction, send you a can of star kiss. We'll do something.
3: So contestants had three minutes to complete the temple run without getting stopped by these temple guards. And during the series, there were 15 different temple layouts and almost 50 different rooms. But for all these 50 rooms, the most notorious room was the Shrine of the Silver Monkey, which was notable because no one could ever get it right. One of the first viral Facebook groups I remember was, I hate it when kids suck at assembling the Shrine Ah! of the Silver Monkey. Remember that? I do remember
0: that. That's one of the few things I remember about this show, is watching children butterfingers this
3: (laughs) monkey. Yeah, I mean, it was infuriating. There's three parts. A base, a middle, a head. You put it (laughs) together. If for some reason, the kids would always screw it up. Watching from home, you will wonder why, what was the problem. But as with most things on the show, it was deceptively difficult. As usual, our beloved host Kirk Fogg has these kids back. He says, do you know how tired you are by the time you get to the Shrine of the Silver Monkey? You're completely out of gas. You get there to this room, the lighting's a little bit funky, and you have to find the three pieces. Okay, that's true. I forgot you have to actually find the three pieces of the right. puzzle first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're stressed, the clock is ticking, you never know when the temple guards are gonna pop out. And I think the real problem was you're doing it with the monkey facing away from you, and I think that was the problem was a lot of kids didn't know if it was supposed to be you know, facing you or away from you. And even Olmec weighed in about how hard it was to put together the Shrine of the Silver Monkey. Speaking at a panel during the New York Comic Con a few years back, Dee Bradley, the voice of Olmec, explained that the middle piece was the problem spot. He said, it could be upside down and you couldn't tell that it was upside down. That's fair uh apparently it took a lot of force to ram the head on too that was like Mm. something that was yeah so you might think it wasn't supposed to go in but you really just had to give it a little more elbow grease so there you go mystery solved shrine of silver monkey that's why a lot of kids screwed it up uh our friend nicole speaking the cracked who so beautifully described the temple set as a combination of a cheap haunted house and a mcdonald's play place she also had thoughts on the shrine of the silver monkey uh, she said it was even cheaper than you think. Felt like heavy compressed foam and had silver bits that flaked off. It just ruined it. It was all hard foam to look like rocks and signs out of camera view saying "avoid the dry ice." <laughs> yeah, because dry ice will like burn
0: your skin off, right? If you touch I know you, it, yeah, directly. I know you can't
3: touch it. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think breathing. I mean, I'm sure breathing is not the best thing you can do, but I don't think that's like super toxic. But yeah, touching it, I think it's, it's like bad. Agent Orange.
0: As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages.
2: Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script— It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get
4: your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
1: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great.
3: So the Shrine of the Silver Monkey was obviously super hard, as was the Temple Run in general. It was so hard that, according to TV Tropes, only 32 teams actually completed it out of the show's 120 episodes. That's a win rate of 26.7%. As a point of fact, as you mentioned earlier, the Silver Snakes and the Green Monkeys were tied for completing the Temple Run, doing so eight times apiece. So, barely over a quarter of the teams rescued the artifact that they needed to retrieve. Uh, Which one would you be? um, I mean, red was my favorite color, so probably the red jaguars. Blue barracudas, baby. So, barely over a quarter of teams rescued the artifact that they needed to recover, which most surely belongs in a museum. There, I'm glad I got that in this episode. Um, (laughs) So, the logical assumption is maybe the producers should have made the run easier. Well, you'll be pleased to know there's a conspiracy theory about that. Kirk Fogg, our beloved Kirk Fogg, told Great Big Story in 2016 that the Temple Runs were designed to be hard from the start because the producers only had the budget for eight grand prizes a season and couldn't afford to have a lot of people win. (laughs) But on the other hand, we love Kirk Fogg, but sometimes he speaks in hyperbole in interviews. Producer Scott Stone refutes the whole budgetary constraint thing. Uh, Speaking to the AV Club, he basically threw the kids under the bus and said it was their own (laughs) damn fault for not being able to do it. He says, what happened was that kids would get in the temple and they're so afraid of the temple guards coming out. Whose fault is that? Uh, That they're not thinking. We were standing on the ground in front of the temple, which is just an open wall, basically a fourth wall, yelling at them of how to do it. Go left, go right, go up, go down, go push the wall. Because we wanted to give the prizes away, he said. It was never that we were trying to hit a number or we were trying to save money. The prizes weren't that expensive. I don't know. I think this explanation is a little self-serving. I mean, you know. They just hate
0: children, once
3: again. <laughs> yeah, right. It gets back to them <laughs> hating children. Uh, the prizes, I mean, compared to, what, the first Constellation prizes were Nestle's Quick tuna fish. And, and Tuna Fish. Uh, the grand prizes weren't bad. These prizes included trips on Norwegian cruises, stays at Smuggler's Notch in Vermont, Cayman Islands, Tampa, and Space Camp is probably the most famous one. Hell yeah. I remember Space Camp distinctly. I went. You go? Oh yeah, you went. Right. Oh, they lied about my age so I could go. And it was, I had never even like slept over at a friend's house successfully to that point without losing my mind. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, it was it was pretty hardcore. You were like in a barracks with all these kids and they would wake you up at five in the morning by switching all the lights on and going, wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. Yeah, like run and laps. It was very military. It was It was intense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wish they would had like Arlie Ermy yelling and uh, yelling at you.
3: I bet you could suck a golf ball through a garden hose, maggot. It was pretty savage. Yeah, it was not a nice experience. Um, but these prizes included, weirdly, a trip to Universal Studios, Florida. And I say weirdly because that's where the show was being filmed. <laughs> so it was like, hey, thanks for coming. For a grand prize, you get to come back. So, anyway. But um, I guess all final contestants got sneakers. BK rash checks? Uh, you know what? Maybe. You know what? Yeah. That might be it. <laughs> um, and if you lost the Temple Run, you actually got pretty decent prizes, like a boom box or a portable CD player, a uh, camera, a remote control car, or this is the one I probably would have opted for, a set of microscopes. <laughs> I might have I got a remote control car, too, actually.
0: I don't know where uh, you want to throw this in, but on eBay right now. There is a set piece from the Legends of the Hidden what? Temple available
3: for sale. Oh, well, well, Olmec got auctioned off, so we'll touch on that, but
0: what is it? It's one of the Golden Idols from the uh, room of the Golden Idols, yes. How much is it? $5,000. Are you shit? <laughs> five grand? Five. Local pickup only. All right, well, folks, for five grand, you too can own a piece of the Hidden Temple. Or one of the shirts. Uh, I am seeing some of these shirts that are out there because the kids all got to take home their shirts, which was just a lovely consolation prize. Can tuna and a t-shirt. Enjoy the nightmares for
3: the rest of your life, kids. <laughs> Except for the silver snakes, which is f***ed up. Well, no, it makes sense because the shirts that they wore on the show were designed to show up better on camera because they were silver. It's kind of a weird color to show up. So they had to keep those because they were... they were uh, custom made but they got facsimiles so that's nice (laughs)
0: Uh, and you know who else kept his shirt from the show that would be our beloved host Kirk Fogg who says that the only prop that he kept from it is his iconic denim shirt which he keeps on his top coat hanger rack by itself in a plastic bag it belongs in a museum (laughs) it does it it truly does it belongs in a museum Uh, you know Kirk banged out the first season of Legends in 10 days. When you think about the amount of time that he actually spent filming on this show for it to pass into Legend and be something he can dine out on the rest of his life, you know.
3: Let's just assume that, oh, there were three seasons. Let's just assume that they all were a similar length of time. This was a month of his life.
0: Yeah, month of
3: his life. Yeah. And it's, yeah, man, his IMDb
0: is not extensive. I think he's a realtor. I just looked him up on Facebook, and among the non-entertainment credits on his Facebook page, he uh, is involved in real estate in some way. So, you know, he's got the personality for it. I respect that, but I guarantee you, man, people are showing up to those showings going, Kirk! Fog.
3: <laughs> yeah, imagine not realizing and showing up to look at a condo and you know it's what being you should, shown by You should swing in. I was going to say, my, you know yeah. what you
0: should do one time that would tank his career, but it would be worth <laughs> it? he has a temple guard pop out of the linen closet he's like showing it to folks and they're like yeah and this place gets beautiful light coming in the evenings oh yeah you should check out this linen closet (laughs) just tries to rip their necklaces off he would get fired that's why he wants to get the old temple guard gang back together for dinner he wants to like (laughs) float that idea to him he's gonna punk people in la real estate Um, speaking of ridiculous, bad ideas, the production staff used to get drunk and do the temple run by themselves after (laughs) taping racked, wrapped. Sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen, but truly who among us? The the kids were gone. I would have done that in a heartbeat. Um, fog said that after the shoots would wrap, the production team would have a few drinks, run the course themselves and bet on each other. (laughs) Which once again, who among us? He also said that before each season, he would always try to do the temple run himself because if they can make it through the temple, I can make it through the temple. It's good to have goals. <laughs> <laughs> but did he ever say how what his best time was?
3: No, that I don't did know. we find
0: that anywhere? Uh,
3: well, you have to make it under three minutes, so presumably, I don't know what his best time was, though. Yeah. What do you think you could do it in? Uh, I'm surprisingly fast. I bet you I could do it <laughs> in 2.30. Okay. Uh,
0: 230 all right i uh, would probably get sidetracked by the guard and i would try and fight the guard that would (laughs) disqualify me but nothing gold can stay and so it was with legends of the hidden temple
3: that is right the show premiered in september of 1993
0: and its ratings were still going strong in 1995 when nickelodeon inexplicably (laughs) canned it They prefer to use the classic executive nomenclature, not renewed, but we all know what that's code for. According to Kirk Fogg, host Kirk Fogg, and others associated with the program, this was pretty much a standard operating procedure for Nick at the time, because they'd already filmed 120 episodes, and at that point, they reasoned, hey, our target audience are children, they have no attention span, we can just run it in syndication under perpetuity. What's the minimum amount of shows that need to be filmed for syndication? Isn't there like a goal that I don't
3: know scripted shows have
0: to hit one hundred episodes is the traditional threshold for a television series to enter syndicated? I am also seeing eighty eight, which I guess goes back to the era of twenty two episode sitcom seasons, with the notion that sitcoms start to suck after the fourth season, which is pretty much a tried and true. ironclad, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you twenty two episodes of season four seasons, you get eighty eight, ship it off to syndication. Anyway. So they had 120, which is over every threshold, uh, and they figured, you know, screw it, let's uh, stop running up these high Radio Shack bills and <laughs> paying Kirk Fogg his outrageous salary and uh, let's send it to syndication, close it. Yeah, not quite two years. Last one was September 1st, 1995, which brings us to the ignominious end of Senor Olmec.
3: Yes, uh, this is probably our most extreme segment of It Belongs in Museum yet, the sad tale of Olmec. Uh, In 2002, the iconic Nickelodeon Studios inside Universal Studios Theme Park in Orlando was on its last legs, and it would close in 2005. And this place was, I mean, it should be turned into a museum, really. It was host to Clarissa Explains It All, Nick Arcade, What Would You Do?, Guts, and I assume Global Guts, Legends of Hidden Temple, Certain Seasons of All That, Eureka's Castle, Gullah, Gullah Island, Figure It Out, and the Mystery Files of Shelby Woo. So a lot of history in those walls, but the game show trends started to decline in the mid-90s following the surprise success of Rugrats and reruns. So the network doubled down on animated shows, and they diverted resources from all the game shows they were making to the animated studios back in L.A., And then several producers started requesting that shows like All That be moved to L.A. so they wouldn't have to leave home because all these producers, for the most part, were based in L.A. anyway. They didn't want to schlep all the way to Orlando whenever the show was shooting. Uh, So then Nickelodeon opened a new live-action studio on Sunset, which became the home base for the majority of all the non-game show stuff. And this is a whole other bigger topic that maybe we can tackle in another episode. But by the early 2000s, the studio in Orlando was becoming redundant. And to clear out space, Nickelodeon sold off a number of props from their glory years, including the Olmec head. And this is according to author Matthew Clickstein, who wrote the incredible book, Slimed, An Oral History of Nickelodeon. It's so good. Uh, a former Nickelodeon staffer told Matthew Clickstein that the Olmec head was up for sale. And the staffer said, I wanted to buy it, but my wife would have killed me, which makes sense. Limited design options for a six foot tall foam rubber head. Um, (laughs) A Pendant of Life medallion was sold at auction a few years back for $300. So not the 5,000 of that idol, but still. And some still pop up on eBay every now and then. And there's uh, you sometimes get some t-shirts that are alleged to be original legends shirts, although they're so many replicas out there it's hard to tell
0: that rugrats thing is so funny because i mean we mentioned this but like people forget that rugrats went away yeah. um and it was only because of the success in syndication that it came back and became the massive hit that it was i mean it became a hit in syndication and then nickelodeon was like oh shit, what do we have on our hands here man i remember seeing that studio and just thinking it was like the happiest place on earth and then yeah. uh, actually going to orlando and learning the truth
3: Did you go and take a tour of it?
0: No, I just went to Orlando when I realized that nothing good is there.
3: (laughs) So Olmec has been sold off. Our beloved Kirk Fogg is selling real estate. It's a sad time for Legends of the Hidden Temple fans. But in the 2010s, there was a resurgence, a renaissance of sorts. There was the 2016 made-for-TV movie inspired by the show, in which Kirk Fogg and Olmec voice D. Bradley Baker had a cameo. And then in March 2020... Time when literally nothing else was going on. Such a peaceful, quiet time. Um, Quibi. Jeffrey Katzenberg. Quibby, put out a casting call looking for adults to participate in a quote, supersized, reimagined versions of Legends of the Hidden Temple. Heigl, tell us about Quibi. <laughs> Quibi. Quibi is that you Quibi. say? It, right? Quibi. Uh, yeah. You may
0: remember, or perhaps blissfully not. Quibi was what the coastal elites like to call a, a new media venture. They were vertically oriented videos. Quibi, short for quick bites, lasted less than a year. Led by meanest guy in Hollywood, non actual rapist category, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and a woman named Meg Whitman. So they basically shot a bunch of shit that was just supposed to look good on your phone, and everything was going to be short. Hence the quick bites thing. They invested
3: a billion dollars in this thing. So, Queeby, a ignoble (laughs) flop from your least favorite person in Hollywood, Jeffrey Katzenberg. So, obviously, when the platform went belly up, uh, many felt that the Legends of the Hidden Temple was not going to get its reboot. But they were wrong. (laughs) Dead wrong. Right. Ultimately, the CW picked it up, and it premiered in October 2021 with Christella Alance as the host, D. Bradley Baker reprising his voice as Olmec, and Kirk Fogg appeared as a guest mentor in four episodes. Hmm. And this new version is fascinating to me because I barely remember hearing a thing about it. It was dubbed More Authentic by Entertainment Weekly. Um hmm culturally at least uh for example olmec's earrings were changed from round ones in the original to square ones to better represent mayan culture more authentically and real hieroglyphics were added to the temple run (laughs) instead of random design squiggles so thanks legends progress (laughs) yeah um and this was with adults so this was supposed to be like heavy duty serious obstacle course and they initially planned to shoot in a real jungle but <laughs> ultimately, they settled on an outdoor set twice the size of the twenty-three foot original set. That I would watch. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you can. It's out there. Um, no,
0: no, no, no. The the jungle one.
3: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Just like um, someone's like
0: running through their goofy little like you know this is for you, Karen. Like at home, they like point up and then jaguar uh, sky point. They would add. Yeah, they they would add some kind of horrifying, like they're doing this to pay for their mother's burial or something. They'd have to add some kind of horrible American dystopia crowdfunding aspect to it, and then just poison darted, and their surviving loved ones get a
3: can of tuna from Sunkist. <laughs> oh, so instead of doing the jungle, they settled on an outdoor set twice the size of the twenty-three foot original <laughs> set, because- a whopping
0: fifty feet. <laughs>
3: (laughs) That sounds wrong, but it was supposed to be significantly bigger than the original set because their justification was it's got to match the memory you had as a kid. You know, when you go back Mm. to places that you knew when you were a kid and they're so small, they wanted this to be bigger for the adults and bigger for the adults watching on screen too. The moat was upgraded from a two-foot bathtub, as producers call it, to an eight-foot deep course the size of half a football field. Okay. The rooms in the temple were also significantly more adult. Case in point, the Crypt of the Heartless. And to describe it, I like to quote original Legends of the Hidden Temple creator Scott Stone, who worked on on this reboot. And he's speaking to my friend Patrick Gomez from Entertainment Weekly last year. This is describing the Crypt of the Heartless. There are three corpses and there's a slit (laughs) in their chest. You reach in and look for the heart that's beating. One of them, one of these corpses, still has a beating heart, and you rip the heart out, and you go, and you put it into this receptacle in the room, and it lights the room up with the veins and arteries that are now flowing with blood. Inside you, there are three corpses. (laughs) Jesus God. Uh, So That would not have made it on Nickelodeon, but I'm honestly unsure if anyone actually expected this whole thing to work, this (laughs) adult reboot of Legends of the Hidden Temple to work. The show was panned with critics in Variety and a number of other outlets saying that the real Achilles heel was the fact that there were adults cast as the contestants. And it basically turned it from a quaint but lovable kids show to a watered-down Survivor. Uh, and that was really the problem. I don't know. I didn't watch. I barely remember hearing of this. Uh, ultimately, it was canceled in June 2022, just a couple weeks uh-huh. ago. And may its memory serve as a reminder to TV executives that not everything needs to be rebooted with a gritty backstory. <laughs> it does seem like they really pushed for the like Jokerification of King yeah. <laughs> 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 Legends of the Hidden Temple. Oh, boy. And that, yeah, that just happened just a couple weeks ago. So I think we are... Up to All speed, caught up. yeah. And uh, well, folks, I think the temple guards are coming for us, and we're being mm. escorted out of the studio right now because we are fresh out of pendants of life. <laughs> uh, we hope you enjoyed yourselves. Please rate the show five stars, and we'll send you some Nestle's Quick or a tin of Starkist tuna. <laughs> uh, and if you write a five-star review, we'll send you a Duncan Imperial Yo-Yo or a Hunchback of Notre Dame VHS from Walt Disney Home Video. That
0: does not constitute a verbal and binding (laughs) contract.
3: Oh, thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Jordan Runtog.
0: And I'm Alex Heigl. We'll see you next time.
3: Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio.
0: The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The
3: supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl with original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.